Good, well, good morning everybody, and can I add my welcome to the welcome already given, and particularly for those of you who are new or relatively new to St Barnabas. Um, Last week we welcomed uh, Kazmiro and Alex from South Sudan, and this morning we welcome another Alex who's from Uganda. Um, All three brothers have left wives and children behind uh, for their three years of study Uh, here in Cape Town. It's a great privilege to have them as part of our church family. And what a wonderful thought it is that what happens here on a Sunday morning echoes in other parts of the African continent uh, for the glory of God. And so we do welcome you and hope that you'll feel thoroughly at home among us. Well, won't you please keep your Bible open at page 742 and also the white bulletin uh, with the outline which is uh, explaining where we're going in the next few minutes. And uh, when you're there, um, I'm going to ask for God's help. The psalmist says that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that in these precious minutes together on Sunday morning, that that would be true for each one of us. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. One of the best ways to start a really good argument um, is to talk about either religion or politics. Uh, And if you want to start a war, well, talk about both. Uh, Bring religion and politics together. Few things have greater potential to create conflict than a kind of unholy alliance between political power and religious faith. Uh, You've only got to think, haven't you, of Al-Qaeda and uh, Islamic State and the terrible misery and suffering uh, that has been caused by them to get the point. But friends, it is as true of Christianity as it is of any other religion. I mean, think of the Crusades, uh, think of the Spanish Inquisition, think of apartheid in this country, or think of the way that uh, Christianity for many years was used to defend slavery. And then consider some of the challenges that we face when we try and do evangelism in Africa. Because, you know, often when people hear about Christianity, they associate it with a political uh, perspective. And so today, in the minds of many people in Africa, uh, Christianity is still associated, isn't it, with European colonialism. Now, this morning, we're not here to debate the rights and wrongs of any one particular political position. But I want us to realise that it's very hard to bring religion and politics together without conflict. It is hard to get that combination right. And when we get it wrong, as we so often do, it causes no end of trouble. Now, if we want to understand the proper relationship between politics and religion, um, our passage this morning is a great place to start. It contains one of the most famous statements that Jesus ever made in verse 25, and uh, we'll be getting to that in a moment. But it all began with a very clever question. 
And you'll find that question in verse 22. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Good question. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor, the ruler of the hated occupying Roman power and the tax, well it was a personal tax paid by each individual in Roman currency um, as a kind of tribute payment to help finance the Roman Empire. And uh, these people are asking Jesus, is it right for us Jews, the, the people of God who were given this land as a, as a gift by God, is it right for us to be paying taxes to our enemies? We'd really like to know, they said, because uh, you're an honest religious teacher and uh, we know that you're not going to be pressured into giving us a politically correct answer. We know that you're going to tell us the truth as it is before God. So, will you tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But it wasn't just a clever question. It was a loaded question as well. You know, it was uh, almost as if these people had been singing that famous hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. And if you know that hymn, you'll know that it has a line in it that says, Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, to thy feet, to God's feet, our tribute bring. But to Caesar's feet, our tribute bring? Surely not. And the question, you see, is expecting Jesus to answer, no, it's not right. It's not right for the people of God to pay their taxes to the hated Roman power. But then what? Well, if Jesus says that, he's going to be in hot water with the Romans, and that, of course, is what they're hoping, that Jesus might be arrested, that uh, he might even be executed for inciting rebellion. And that would be terribly convenient, wouldn't it, for the Jewish leadership, because then they won't have to do it themselves. It's very clever. And uh, if Jesus says, yes, it is right to pay taxes, well, he's going to be in trouble on that score as well, because the people wanted Jesus to be a political messiah who was going to rescue them from the Romans. And the last thing that they wanted was for Jesus to say, yes, it's absolutely fine. Press on, pay your taxes to the Romans. So it's a very clever question. Uh, it's kind of a heads I win, tails you lose question. And the way that Jesus deals with it has got a very great deal to say to you and I this morning. So you'll see from the outline that there are two main parts to the message. Uh, first, we're going to look at the motives of Jesus' questioners because their motives serve as a warning to us. And then we're going to look at the content of Jesus' answer to try and understand it and uh, to see what challenge there is for us in it. So first of all, let's look at the motives of Jesus' questioners. Now, as always, it's very important to have the context absolutely clear in our minds. And for the benefit of those of you who weren't with us last week, can I invite us all, please, to look back 
to chapter 19 and verse 47. Uh, Jesus has just come into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday and uh, in verse 47 we're told every day Jesus was teaching at the temple but the chief priests, now that is to say the priestly members of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and also the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people, that is to say the non-priestly members of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council, these top people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people, that is to say the common people, the ordinary people, hung on his words. So it's very interesting, at this particular point in the Gospel of Luke, we've got the situation where the top people hate Jesus and the common people love him. The reason that the top people hate Jesus is because the common people are claiming that Jesus is king. That's what they were doing on the first Palm Sunday. And uh, the top people don't like Jesus being acclaimed as a king because they recognise, don't they, that if Jesus is king, well, they're not going to be top people anymore. That might be a rather simplistic way of expressing it, but that is the issue in a nutshell. They like being top people. They like being in control. They like being in control of their money and their time and where they live and the people they associate with. They like being free to make their own choices. And Luke wants us to see that they are just like us. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that uh, we're top people in South Africa. Uh, most people have never even heard of St Barnabas. But the point is that all of us like to make our own decisions. And like them, uh, we often feel threatened by the Lord Jesus Christ, by Jesus the King. So think back for a moment to the time of your own conversion. I think for most of us, uh, when the Jesus question first came over the horizon, we reacted defensively. Uh, for years, it uh, hadn't really bothered us very much if uh, one or two of our neighbours or friends or distant family members were Christian. We said to ourselves, well, you know, if that works for them, that's, that's lovely. But when the claims of Jesus the King first came into our lives and we heard that we ought to bow down at his feet and that we ought to let Jesus the King determine how we spend our time, what kind of relationships we build with people, how we spend our money, how we conduct ourselves at work, even the job that we do, and where we live, and how we live, and how we conduct our marriages, I think most of us said instinctively, well, just hang on a moment. That feels really, really intrusive. And we reacted 
defensively. Now, you see, that's what was going on with these top people. They were defensive. They were on the back foot. They thought, you know, we don't like Jesus the King, so we're going to try and get him into trouble. And by nature, we are like them. Now, they'd already tried to question his authority. Uh, We saw that last week, didn't we, at the beginning of chapter 20. They challenged his authority to teach and to clean up the temple. Uh, But that didn't work, did it? Because Jesus got the better of them. And so now, this morning, in verse 20, they try a new tactic. Uh, They keep a close watch on Jesus and they send spies who pretend to be honest. And these spies are pretending to be honest seekers after truth. And you know what? They give a pretty impressive performance. Have a look again at verse 21. Teacher, they say, very respectful that, isn't it? Very respectful. We know that you speak and teach what is right, and uh, we're like that as well. We want to hear right teaching, they say. We're honest seekers after truth. And we know that you don't show partiality. We know that you don't bend what you teach according to what people want to hear. And that's precisely what we're looking for. Honest teaching, they say. And uh, we know that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. We're genuine people, they say. And uh, that's why we've come to you. But of course it isn't. It's a sham. Uh, If you look back to verse 20, you can see the real reason. They want to catch Jesus. They want to trap him. They're trying to create a file or a dossier of uh, incriminating evidence against Jesus to give to the Roman governor. Uh, Now their motives and the way that they go about it is actually a warning to us. It's a warning to those of us here this morning who are Christian people. Because you see, you and I can go through the motions of the Christian faith and the Christian life. Some of us may be absolutely marvellous actors. Uh, We might be able to do it very convincingly. And it may actually be that uh, other people will look at us and say, you know, yes, uh, he or she is a really genuine Christian. They're wanting to go God's way. They're wanting to follow Christ. And uh, we may say Christian things and do acts of Christian service. And yet in our hearts, it may be that it's actually a bit of a sham. Because in our hearts, we don't actually want to go God's way at all. We might perhaps pray for God's guidance, but all the time what we really want is for God to, as it were, rubber stamp the decision we've already made. Can I say that that is a danger for all of us, myself included, and it's a warning that we need to take seriously. And it's also a warning for those of us here this morning who might not be Christian people yet. Now, let me, let me say straight away that uh, if you're not a Christian, you're very welcome. Um, we're always absolutely delighted 
when somebody comes to church who, who isn't a Christian but says that they want to know what Christianity is really all about and some of them really are very genuine. Uh, they know that the promise of the Lord Jesus who says, seek and you will find. And that promise of course is for real, isn't it? So if somebody does come along to church and says, I'm seeking and I really do want to discover the truth and when I find the truth, I want to embrace it and follow it, God will honour that promise. But you see, it is possible, isn't it, to look as if we're seeking after the truth, to ask good questions To to appear to be genuine, but actually to be just like the spies in Luke chapter 20. And not to be genuine, but actually wanting to go our own way. And so there's a challenge for all of us in the motives of these questioners. But you know, it was never a very good idea to ask Jesus a trick question. Uh, Lots of people tried it, didn't they? It's all over the Gospels. But their trick questions always bounce back with interest. And uh, the questioners always ended up feeling really rather uncomfortable. And that's what happens here. So let's turn now from the motives of Jesus' questioners to the content of Jesus' answer. And I think we'll see that there's a double challenge for us in uh, these verses. The first thing that Jesus does here in verse 23 is to expose their hypocrisy. Luke tells us, doesn't he, that he saw through their duplicity. Well, of course he did. He's God. He wasn't fooled. And in verse 24, he makes a seemingly innocent request. Show me a denarius, he says. Now, what could possibly be more innocent than that? Well, I need to explain, I think, that uh, at the time of Jesus, uh, Judea was a bit like a modern airport, uh, to the extent that several different currencies were in circulation at the same time. So, uh, in Judea, uh, there was uh, Greek currency, lots of Greek coins, the Greek drachma. Uh, There were also Jewish coins, shekels. Uh, There were coins from the city of Tyre, which was a prosperous trading city rather to the north of uh, Jerusalem. And there were Roman coins, the denarius. Now they were all of them legal tender and they could be used interchangeably. So uh, when you reach the checkout at Pick and Pay on Sunday morning, you could take out your wallet and you could use any one of those different currencies. It didn't really matter. Uh, But here Jesus asks very specifically for a Roman denarius. It was a a small silver coin. And uh, on one side it had the head of the Emperor Tiberius. And uh, on his head was the laurel wreath of the conqueror and underneath were the words Tiberius Caesar, son of the deified Augustus, himself Augustus. 
Uh, I need to say that the word Augustus wasn't just the name of Tiberius' father, it was a word that meant very important. So Tiberius is saying, you know, I'm a really important guy. And on the back of the coin was the figure of the empress's mother, Livia, uh, portrayed as the goddess Pax, meaning peace. And underneath were the words in Latin, Pontifex Maximus, which meant high priest. Now think about that for a moment. What it means is that every single denarius coin was a superb piece of political and religious propaganda. It advertised Tiberius as a god, he was deified, and it reminded people of the completely phony and false peace that Rome had enforced on all of the nations that it had conquered. Uh, So it was kind of a reminder of who was in charge. So for very obvious reasons, no pious, self-respecting, orthodox Jew would want that particular currency in his wallet. Uh, Most of the Pharisees and the Zealots would avoid using the Roman currency like the plague. They considered it a sin to do so. And uh, most of the time, you could actually survive and get by perfectly well without it. But the sense in the text here is that when Jesus said to these deeply religious, faithful Jewish people, show me a denarius, they had absolutely no difficulty in producing one. In fact, the sense is that they replied, sure, no problem. How many do you want? So you see, they were immediately on the back foot because it was obvious that they were always using the hated Roman currency. Of course they were, you see, and then they were top people, weren't they? And in order to preserve their status and their prestige, they were more than happy to collaborate with the Romans and make the best of it. And, uh, you know, if that meant just compromising their religious beliefs just a little bit, especially the belief that there is only one God who tolerates no other gods, well, as far as these pious Jewish people were concerned, that wasn't a problem because, I mean, after all, you've got to be pragmatic, haven't you, they said. You've got to be realistic. And so their hypocrisy was immediately exposed as soon as they put their denarii on the table. But Jesus then pushes it a bit further. He says, um, whose portrait and inscription are on it? Of course, Jesus knew and they knew. It was Caesar's portrait. It was his head, his inscription, his name, his title. And then Jesus utters the immortal line, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And Luke tells us, doesn't he, in verse 26, that they were astonished by his answer, and they couldn't trap him, and they became silent. And the question, of course, is why? Why did Jesus' answer astonish them? Actually, these words in verse 25 have passed into the English language. Uh, Many people who never ever darken the doors of uh, a church have heard these words, usually, I think, in the King James Version, with that rather strange word, render. 
um, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's render unto God, the things that are God's. So the words of Jesus in verse 25 are instantly familiar to most of us. But what did Jesus really mean? Well, first, let me suggest something that he didn't mean. He couldn't possibly have meant this, actually. Jesus did not mean that there are two separate spheres of life. Uh, So, on the one hand, people today often talk about the the secular realm. Uh, That would have been the, the sphere of Caesar. And then, on the other hand, there is the spiritual or the religious realm, the sphere of God. And people often talk about the the secular and the sacred as being two discrete, separate compartments of life. Now, it is absolutely unthinkable that Jesus meant that. That on Sunday, we're in the religious compartment, and then on Monday morning, we re-enter the secular compartment, and there's no overlap. Jesus could not possibly have meant that. Because the Bible is everywhere reminding us that what is God's is the whole world and the whole of human history. What does the psalmist say? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So what does that mean? It means that politics belongs to God. It means economics belongs to God. Family belongs to God. Career belongs to God. Money belongs to God. Leisure belongs to God. Possessions and um, everything we have belongs to God. So, to give God what belongs to God cannot be less than to love God with all that we have. Our heart, our soul, our mind and our strength. And I know that when many people hear that, they say, well, you know, hang on a minute. I'm not a bad person. You know, I've never done anything terribly wrong. But my dear friend, we have. Because by nature, all of us, every single one of us in this room, has rejected God's rule in some areas of our lives. And we've made our own decisions without any reference to God whatsoever. And by doing that, we have not given God what is rightly his. That actually is what sin is. And it's why it's so serious. Because all of us have dethroned God in some area of our lives. And so you see, whether we're respectable or not, or whether we're just as good as the other people in the street where we live or not, that actually isn't the issue at all. We ought to submit to God and we haven't. And that is the fundamental truth that the Bible teaches. Now, you might then say, well, okay, uh, if that's the case, then to give to God what is God's is to give God everything So tell me, what does Jesus actually mean when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Because quite honestly, it sounds like there's nothing left. 
But the Bible, you see, says that God delegates authority to Caesar and to all rulers and to all governments in different spheres of life. He gives them authority to rule over countries and rule over institutions. And the point is, you see, that if God delegates that authority to them, then our submission to them is actually an expression of our submission to God. And so, for example, in Romans chapter 13, uh, Paul calls the authorities God's servants or ministers. When he was writing the Book of Common Prayer, um, Archbishop Cranmer really grasped what Paul was driving at so clearly. And uh, in the communion service, he wrote this prayer. Almighty and ever-living God, we ask you to lead all nations in the way of righteousness and peace, and so to direct all kings and rulers that under them your people may be godly and quietly governed. Now listen. And grant to your servant, our king, and to all that are put in authority under him, that they may truly and impartially minister justice and so on. So can you see that the king, uh, the president, the prime minister, have been set over us by God? They are God's servants, God's ministers, they rule under God, and they are accountable to him. And we pray, don't we, that as they rule over us, that they'll remember that. Many, of course, don't. Many of them haven't even got the foggiest idea that they were put there by God at all. But you see, nevertheless, that is the biblical model of authority. I think it's helpful to consider a parallel uh, example from Scripture. Uh, do you remember that um, when Jesus was asked to summarise the law of God, he said, the first commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now, some people, you see, have misunderstood that. And they've said that, you know, there's one sphere of life where we love God. And that's the religious sphere. And then there's another sphere of life where we love our neighbour. And that's the social or the ethical sphere. And uh, they say that our job, our responsibility is to balance the two. So we'd better not love God too much or we won't actually pay any attention to our neighbour. Can you believe it? Some people do actually say that. But that cannot possibly be right because we're told to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Now you see, the point is that our love for neighbour is an expression of our love for God. And the idea is that God puts my neighbour in front of me and he says, love him, care for him. And that's why we do it. That's why we love him. It's an expression of our love for God. And it's precisely the same principle here. Our submission to Caesar 
or to any civil authority over us, in whatever context it might be, ought to be an expression of our submission to God himself. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 13, and I've given you a question about that in this week's Bible study. It's also what Peter teaches in 1 Peter chapter 2. And, uh, you know, you've only got to live in a society, as some of you have, where civil order breaks down to see just how important this is. I mean, think of many examples we could think of, but think of Zimbabwe as an example. Before the recent change of government, uh, the government in Zimbabwe wasn't uh, a godly government any more than the government of Rome was. But you know, if we lived in parts of Zimbabwe where order had broken down and there was looting and rioting and violence of every kind, we would be longing, wouldn't we, for the re-establishment of order. It's the first thing that a new government has to do, to restore order. If we lived in a place where order had totally broken down, we would long for order to be restored. And so you see, one of the implications of what Jesus was saying to the Jews in verse 25 is, look, you might not like Caesar, but he has a place. At this point in history, he's governing and he's keeping order. He's not doing it perfectly, not by any means. And he's certainly not doing it in a godly fashion. But order is better than disorder, even if it's not perfect. So, the first challenge that Jesus puts before us is not to reject the authority of God by rejecting the rightful authority of the government and just kind of going our own way in a form of anarchy. That's the first challenge here to be good citizens. Isn't that dull? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have something a bit more radical than that? But the Bible teaches that, as Christians, we ought to be good citizens. Uh, And in our context, where we're under various authorities in all kinds of different ways, we are to cooperate We're to pray for those in authority over us and we are to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness. And uh, we ought to pay our taxes, says Paul in Romans 13. So that's the first challenge. But there is another challenge because we're bound to be thinking at this point, well, hang on a moment, Simon. What if the authority over us is so ungodly that we can't possibly cooperate? What happens if the civil authority has so radically rebelled against God that it's seeking to instruct us and force us to be ungodly in the way that we behave? Well, actually, the Bible does tell us precisely what to do, and we find that situation in the book of Acts. You don't need to turn to it. Uh, It's in the Bible study for this week. But in Acts chapter 4, the authorities say to the apostles, no more preaching. 
We forbid you to teach in the name of Jesus. No more sermons, no more church. And uh, the apostles replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight for us to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. In other words, the apostles on that occasion did not submit to the civil authority. And you find exactly the same thing in chapter 5, so it wasn't a one-off. They were taken to task again for continuing to preach the gospel, and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. Now, the point is, Scripture does not spell out all the different situations we might face. It doesn't always tell us specifically when we need to submit and when we should resist. There isn't a whole kind of case book for us to look at. Jesus doesn't spell it out. But what Jesus does do is to challenge our motives and to spell out the principle And he says this, basically, if you're praying and you really want to know God's way and you really want to go God's way and live God's way, God will guide you. But, of course, the people asking the question in verse 20 of our passage this morning, they didn't want to go God's way, did they? And so Jesus would have been wasting his time if he'd continued to dialogue with them. So he didn't. He merely exposed their hypocrisy and their duplicity. He exposed their motives for what they were. And I just want to leave you with one thought as we go into this week. Friends, we need to pray that our motives will be pure. Not like the motives of the spies in Luke 20, And we need to pray that we will genuinely want to submit to God and to submit to those authorities that God has placed over us. So why don't we do that now? Let's have a a moment of quiet and I will then lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your vision and insight into the human heart. We praise you that you could see when people were not genuine and that you responded forcefully to them. We praise you that you could also see when seekers were genuine and you responded in mercy and grace. And I pray for all of us here that in our hearts there might be purity of motive and a genuine willingness to do your will as you guide. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.